You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, as many of you are aware, I assume all of you, um, there's lots of talk going on lately about a potential war with, with Iran. Is my mic cutting out? It is cutting out, yeah. We've got frequency issues. Max, could you help me out with... We, you should, should we swap them? Aiden, should we just go to the wired, do you think? Yeah, okay, cool. We'll go to the wired mic. Thanks, Max. No worries. Thank you, thank you. Okay. This is Max's mic. Awesome. You know, nothing beats a wired mic. <laughs> Well, I don't know about that, but you know what I mean. All right, so as many of you are aware, there's been lots of talk over the last week or two about a potential war with Iran. Uh, things are, seem to be de-escalating at the moment, right? Uh, things were ramping up after the assassination of Soleimani, and then, of course, um, there was the shooting down of the, the uh, Ukrainian flight. Um, nevertheless, there's a lot of fear and confusion out there, especially among... Iranians and Persians, and as Bob was talking about earlier, um, there's many in our community, as, as you're well aware, Glendale, Burbank has a large Armenian and Persian community. I, in fact, was contacted this week over text, uh, uh, a mutual, uh, well, a, a friend of mine in ministry was contacted by uh, an Iranian family that was deeply, deeply grieving and, and terrified because they have family back in Iran. This is, this is a local Iranian family that was looking for a church that would adequately respond to their, their fears and their concerns and their, and their grievances, and so he passed on the message to me. My point in saying all this is to say that this is a really big deal for our community right now. And there's, there's many, many people specifically within Glendale that have family back in Iran and are terrified about a potential war and, and their family members back there. Um, and so I think it's important for us as a church, specifically in Glendale, to speak about this. But more than that, I think it's important for us as Christians to speak up in times like this. And for me as a pastor, to unequivocally say that a war with Iran does not meet the criteria of a just war. More than that, I'm deeply troubled, disturbed at our president's rhetoric, specifically saying that he's open to bombing civilian targets, cultural targets, uh, targets of historical significance for the sole purpose of terrorizing the Iranian people. We as Christians and as a church absolutely have to denounce such rhetoric, absolutely have to take a stance against such an unjust war as that and the unprecedented amount of of suffering and death that would result. We, we absolutely, I feel like I have to take a stand against that and, and speak against it. Um, but many Christians and many churches will not do that. I was in South Florida last week for the annual uh, Q, QCF, Q Christian Conference. I was in Fort Lauderdale. And just 30 minutes away, while from, from the place we were staying and holding the conference, uh, Trump was there at a Miami megachurch holding a holding a rally, touting his recent killing of the Iranian general Soleimani to his evangelical audience in the hopes of stirring their support and admiration for him. And it works. They cheer him. They cheer him for that assassination and the potential 
of war with Iran. Now, why is that? Why is it that so many evangelicals are even ecstatic about a war with Iran, or perhaps at least apathetic about it? You know, the attitude might be, yeah, it's, it's, a war with Iran's inevitable and it's probably God's will, so let's just get on with that. Where does that come from? Why is it possible for the leader of our country to stand up and tout the assassination of an Iranian general and be lauded by throngs of evangelicals for it? What is going on there? Well, it's, it's complicated, but the reason has a lot to do with people's theology, namely this thing called dispensational eschatology. There's a term for you. Dispensational eschatology. Anybody ever hear of dispensationalism before? couple of you, a couple of you Bible nerds like me. Well, it's basically this idea, and I grew up with this, um, that before the rapture can occur, before the second coming of Christ can come, there has to be this cataclysmic war in the Middle East where Israel and the United States are victorious over the powers of darkness, essentially the Islamic powers of the Middle East, and it's kind of vague and amorphous about who that is necessarily. But there's this there's this theology, this eschatology endemic to American Christianity, evangelicalism, that actually wants to see a kind of Armageddon occur in order to usher in the second coming. And actually, there's a, there's a meme that's been popularized on, on Facebook about this. Uh, here it is up on the screen that really um, kind of exemplifies this view. So this is from the naked pastor, a progressive Christian um, pastor that puts these out. So here we have three Christians in a church saying the Bible promised this would happen. You see the war going on outside the church. The Bible promised this would happen so there's nothing we can do about it. And the other person says, or should. And then the third person, in fact, then shouldn't we make it happen? Okay, this, this, is, this is essentially what's going on in a lot of evangelical eschatology. This, this kind of pro-war, uh, war-mongering, this, this app, even this kind of like, you'd see the third person sort of like, kind of this apathetic, oh, maybe we should actually just, you know, get on with it. Maybe we should actually make it happen. You know, it's inevitable, this is God's will that we should go to war with these Islamic powers in the Middle East. Um, this, is, this is what's undergirding a lot of the evangelical support for this potential war with Iran. And it leads to this kind of macabre desire for Armageddon, right? It's pretty twisted, it's pretty sick stuff. I grew up with this. I mean, I, I was probably 25 until I got rid of this, this kind of eschatology. Anybody grew up with this kind of eschatology? Yeah, yeah, a handful of you, right? It's pretty dangerous stuff. Um, and, and the thing about it is, you know, it's, I, I firmly believe that our, it's our political and moral values that determine our theology rather than the other way around. You know, it's easy for us to point at this and say that this is the cause for, every, for what's wrong with like evangelical foreign policies. No, it's actually the reverse. It's, it's the political values and the moral values that determine our theology. And this works on the unconscious, I think. I don't even think we're consciously aware of how this works. It is really our political and moral values that determine our theology rather than the other way around. Our theology is really an expression, an extension of the political and moral values we already hold that we inherited from our family, our friends, our culture, our tribe, essentially. Our theology just becomes an outworking of whatever the political and moral values we might adhere to. So I see that, that kind of evangelical eschatology, that, that um, apathy or hunger for Armageddon as, as an extension of, of, of the deeper political 
um, things going on within evangelicalism, the, the, the morals, really, the values of vast swaths of the American public. So we're living in dangerous times. And I want to use this occasion today to speak about, speak about war, to talk about what, what a Christian perspective on war and violence might be. I want to talk about nonviolence today. And I want to, in order to begin a conversation about what a Christian perspective on war and violence and, and to be advocates of nonviolence from a Christian perspective, we need to start with Jesus. We need to read, I think, part of his famous Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew 5. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those, only those who love you, what reward, do you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now to me, this is a passage that's, it's not prescriptive, I don't believe, about exactly how we are to live in every situation in life. Uh, but it's meant to give us a foundational value of nonviolence. This means that the question that interests us most is not, when is it okay to go to war? When is it okay to use violence? When is it okay to kill somebody? I don't believe Jesus was interested at all in those kinds of questions. Instead, I think Jesus was interested in the question, what does just peacemaking look like? What does just peacemaking look like? I don't think Jesus was at all concerned about helping us understand when we're allowed to use violence and kill. I think if we could have, you know, could go, go back in time and ask the Jesus of the Gospels, Jesus, can you give us a list? Can you give us a set of criteria where we can draw a line in the sand, specifics about, you know, when somebody crosses this line, we are allowed to retaliate in violence. Can you at least give us a, a set of criteria that we can go by that gives us justification for violence. When, when is it okay for us to use violence and retaliation or something like that as, a, as an individual or as a society? I don't think Jesus was interested at all in that question. I don't think he was invested at all in that kind of thinking. I think Jesus was only interested in behaviors and attitudes that break the cycle of violence and hate and evil because I think Jesus understood that violence begets violence, hate begets hate, evil begets evil, war begets war. This is why Jesus says in our passage today, you have heard it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now Jesus is quoting from Exodus there. He's quoting a piece of the Mosaic law out of the book of Exodus, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. President Trump's favorite scripture, by the way. And what's interesting about that text is that that law was actually intended it was written for the intent purpose of limiting retributive justice. To say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was, was a way of saying back then, this is Bronze Age, ancient Near East, it was a way of saying if somebody knocks your eye out, you don't get to knock both of theirs out. You get to knock one out. 
If somebody knocks your tooth out, you don't get to knock their entire teeth out. You get to knock just one out. It's kind of a ridiculous law when you think about it. But the idea behind it was simply to set a limit on violence. The, the spirit of that law was to break the cycle of violence. The spirit of that law was to set a limit on retributive justice. And Jesus, of course, takes that law and the spirit of that law. Jesus was interested in the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law, right? Jesus took the spirit of that law to its natural conclusion and said, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not return evil for evil. In other words, somebody knocks your tooth out, don't knock any of theirs out. He took the, he took the spirit of that law to its natural conclusion and said, do not return evil for evil. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. He was interested in establishing an ethic or a foundational value of nonviolence for the sole purpose of breaking the cycle of violence. Breaking the cycle of violence. You see that? This is what he's up to here. It's not so prescriptive. It's not meant to be read like, okay, Jesus tells us exactly what to do in every circumstance in life. No, he's giving us a foundational ethic of nonviolence. He's interested in helping us form behaviors and attitudes that break the cycle of violence and hate and evil in the world. Do you see that? This is what's so important. This is what makes Jesus so brilliant. This, this is what makes these teachings timeless and powerful even today. We, we have to be invested as Christians in, in talking about, thinking about attitudes and behaviors that break cycles of violence. This is what we should be concerned about. Now, just to complicate things here, because you know I like to do that. The same Jesus who says, love your enemy, also says, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And those two mandates, love your enemy and love your neighbor as yourself, can and sometimes do conflict. At what point does loving my neighbor become a higher priority than loving my enemy? You see how this might work? How is it loving my neighbor to, to allow them to be brutalized and harmed when there's something I could do or we as a society could do to stop it, even if that means acting violently, doing something violent? If the only thing keeping me from violence is maintaining what I perceive as good theology, I don't think that's enough. The point of theology isn't to have the right beliefs. The point of theology is not to have the right beliefs or the right ideology. The point of theology is to live rightly in the world. The point of theology is to minimize human suffering, I believe. When our theology gets in the way of that, our theology becomes irrelevant and even potentially immoral. I have a friend who lives in Northridge who is a self-professed Christian pacifist. And he told me one time that if somebody were to, this is a friend of mine, he told me one time, if somebody was to break into my house one night and begin hurting my family, I take Jesus' command to love my enemy so seriously that there was, I, I would not intervene violently to stop them. Now, I'm telling you about this person simply to say that that's a very extreme form of pacifism that most pacifists would not agree with. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, perhaps one of the greatest Christian pacifists and, and Christians committed to the idea of nonviolence in the 20th century, he said, you know, inaction is action. 
Not to act is to act. Not to speak is to speak. This idea that you know, violence is just a kind of real action instead of passivity is false. Passivity can be just as violent as action, okay? The, the idea that my friend wouldn't use force or violence to stop someone from hurting his family, first of all, I don't really believe him. <laughs> I think when the rubber meets the road, I think he would act, okay? But th this idea that we shouldn't use force or violence to stop someone from, from hurting somebody else, this is, this is a kind of violence to me, and this is not what I think Christian pacifism or nonviolence is about, okay? What... what my friend espouses is a kind of extreme form of pacifism that I would even say isn't even really pacifism. So when someone calls himself a pacifist or, or someone like me who, who aspires to be you know, an advocate for nonviolence, this is not what I'm talking about. This kind of passivity that leads to all kinds of, you know, that can lead to kind of immorality or, or violence in the world is what I'm saying. That's not pacifism. So I don't want people, it's, I think sometimes we conflate that idea of pacifism with this extreme form of passivity. That's not fair. That's not pacifism. Real pacifism is committed to minimizing human suffering and, and a kind of nonviolent ethic. And, you know, this is complicated stuff. Um, being committed to nonviolence means, to me, being committed to minimizing human suffering. And sometimes, yes, that means acting violently. And in order to understand what I mean by that, I, I think we need to talk about for a few minutes the, the different power dynamics of violence because not all violence is created equal. You know, quite often in the media when you, for those of you who watch cable news, I mean, it doesn't have to be watch cable news. Who watches cable news, by the way? I don't watch cable news. But if, if you ever, if you pay attention to the media, often what, what you see depicted as violent and called violent are like you know, angry protesters smashing the windows of a bank. No one ever calls what the bank does as violent, do they? You know, the bank with its predatory lending practices, you know, crushing debt. You know, no one ever calls that violent. But that is a level of violence that individuals alone are not capable of. And no one ever calls these massive corporations that exploit millions of people, that refuse to pay people living wages, that, that take away health care, no, no, no one ever calls these massive corporations that, that, that behave like this as violent, but they are truly violent and in ways that individuals are not capable of. You know, no, no one ever calls the healthcare industry, insurance providers, violent. But let's be very clear. I mean, these, these massive insurance companies that enrich their executives and their shareholders while denying coverage to people, allowing them to suffer and die horrible deaths because they can't afford insulin or some bullshit like that. That's, that's a level of violence that none of us are really capable of. You know, crushing people with medical debt, destroying families with bankruptcy for medical debt, that is a level of violence that is unprecedented. You know, so when, when we see angry protesters labeled as violent because they're clashing with the police in the street or smashing the windows of a bank, I don't really, that kind of violence doesn't bother me too much, to be perfectly frank. I'm more interested in the kind of systemic violence that they're reacting against, the true violence of this world and its systems that crush people and exploit them and destroy lives every single damn day. In order to talk adequately about violence and to be proponents of nonviolence, we have to understand the power dynamics of violence and to call what's really violent, violent. Massive corporations, the banks, the healthcare industry, the government, 
when it crushes people and oppresses people in the way that it does. Let's call violence what it really is. That's, those things are violent. The power dynamics of violence. And for this reason, I think we also need to be careful to not disempower oppressed people groups by being overly critical of violent forms of violent resistance. Violent resistance against oppressive governments and institutions is sometimes the only, the only recourse some people have to liberate themselves. I think when well-meaning, middle-class, comfortable white folks on the left like me, you know, criticize people of color or people from other classes for violent resistance, I think that can be kind of disempowering and at, frankly be kind of naive and come from a place of privilege. So we have to understand the different power dynamics of violence to truly be committed to nonviolence. I think again, to be a person of nonviolence, to be a, a Christian committed to nonviolence in the way of Christ is to be committed to minimizing human suffering and to be committed to attitudes and behaviors that break the cycles of violence, the truly violent systems in our world the kinds of systemic violence I talked about a minute ago. These are very complicated matters. And part of what I want you to see this morning is how nonviolence is not a fixed ideology. You know, this is not a set of, there, there's not a set of doctrines or a set of strategies or rules to memorize here, okay? It, it's, again, more about a spectrum of ideas and attitudes towards violence that's committed towards minimizing human suffering. And I think being a person committed to, to nonviolence also means equally valuing the suffering of others as ourselves, and equally valuing, valuing the suffering of other communities as much as the suffering of our community, equally valuing the suffering of other nations as much as the suffering within our nation. And that's really hard to do. You know, I think what often happens in, in debates and conversations about you know, foreign policy and, and how we are to you know, how we function militarily around the world. I think what often happens in these debates and dialogues is unconsciously what's going on is that other people's suffering is not being valued as much as our own, right? And imagine how different we would be as, how, how different our nation would behave in places like Iraq and Iran, Afghanistan, if we equally valued those people's lives as much as we valued Americans' lives. Imagine for a moment what it would look like if we equally valued the lives of their children. And all of those, the untold hundreds of thousands of civilians who have died as, in collateral damage over the last two decades in those countries. Imagine if we equally valued their lives as much as we valued our own citizens' lives. I think it would absolutely change foreign policy and the willy-nilly way that we execute drone, drone strikes and airstrikes left and right. Hundreds of thousands, I am not exaggerating, hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, including children, have died over the last 20 years because of U.S. airstrikes, specifically in the Middle East, places like Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, etc. And to be very clear, those, we, we, have, we have killed those people in the name, primarily in the name of protecting the oil market. A few weeks ago, when the Iranian general Soleimani was killed, the Dow dropped 200 points the next day. Now, of course, it recovered 
soon thereafter because matters de-escalated. But I only pointed out simply to say this. Any, any question you might have about how, how invested we are militarily in the Middle East for oil, there's no debate. We, we are absolutely invested as much as we are in the Middle East militarily as a nation because we want to stabilize the oil market and keep it stable so that our economy remains stable and so that we, our wealth remains booming. I mean, the Dow and the S&P was up un, unprecedented here in 2019. Our, our, our investment there militarily is absolutely about money and oil. And so to be quite clear, Hundreds of thousands of people, innocent civilians, have lost their lives in the name of the U.S. economy and the oil markets. And we have to acknowledge that. And it really bothers me that a lot of Christians will not acknowledge that, that we are paying with people's lives to maintain our wealth, to maintain the stability of the oil market. And we're just going to keep doing it as a country. Another drone strike tomorrow, whatever, you know? <sighs> and I, realize, I realize a lot of what I'm talking about today is kind of abstract. Maybe you're wondering, okay, Aaron, you know, how does this all apply to my life? None of, you know, none of us are policymakers, right? None of us are elected to a legislature. None of us are currently serving in the military or in law enforcement. We don't struggle daily with wondering how, whether or not, and how to use violence, you know? But I do think this is a valuable and important dialogue for us to, to have, specifically in the matters of our personal lives and you know, our relationships and how we think about voting, right? But specifically how we live with each other and the dialogues we have. You know, we all have circles of influence. This subject matter matters for a couple of reasons. Matters because we each have circles of influence. We have family and friends and coworkers. We have the ability to be advocates of nonviolence, even in our little spheres. And I think that's really important, even in a room such as this one. And those of you watching on Facebook or listening to the podcast, you know, the amount of lives that we can touch, even in this small community, we're talking about thousands of people, you know, but the amount of lives and the circles of influence we have. So this matters in our personal relationships, being advocates of nonviolence. But I also think on the level of our personal spiritual lives, I believe that Really understanding Jesus' teachings about nonviolence and, and investing ourselves, committing ourselves to a Christ-like ethic of nonviolence and being committed to minimizing human suffering and being committed to the sanctity of human life, I think, deepens our sense of connection to the divine, deepens our sense of connection to the sacred, deepens our sense of connection to Christ himself. And so I believe this matters, even though we're not policymakers, and it, sometimes it's hard to know exactly how these dialogues about nonviolence matter. They matter. They matter in a lot of ways. And so I'm, I'm, I'm done with my presentation now, and I want to hear from you. You know, this is, this is, we brought up a lot today, and, and anything goes. Um, I don't know if I said anything about, if you have any questions about, you know, evangelical eschatology, anything you want to ask about that, or specifically, um, Anything you want to talk about nonviolence um, and how we think about nonviolence? Anybody, did I raise any questions or anybody want to comment about anything I, I talked about today? Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. 
If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. So yeah, I think I just wanted to discussion point about um, life and living and how difficult it is just to live in general for our own lives and making sure. And then we add an element to it, which is the rest of the world, you know, all the, all the craziness that's happening in the rest of the world. And at least for it can be difficult to find time and space to keep all of that emotion right, yeah. and to maintain it and to know how to um, dole it out. And, you know, the past six months, I've just been kind of away from, like, social media and not, like, just been, I've been just in this place of, like, self-care for yeah. myself just because I've realized I've, I've to things and I need just go ahead and just not even use the mic it's cutting it out sorry sorry man just a guy get drawn into my uh, right Right, yeah, you, f- you feel it deeply, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's overwhelming, it's too much. I don't know, I don't know you know, honestly, like, I've taken a step back a little bit from social media myself um, and my engagement with it because I just, I don't feel healthy when I'm overly immersed in it. I, I just, I feel not just overwhelmed, I feel kind of depressed by it, you know? And I, so I just well, first of all, want to applaud you and, and recommend to everybody. Taking a step back from social media can be such a healthy thing to do for your headspace. And, and honestly, like, you know, I'll be scrolling through Facebook. This happens to me every day. I'll be scrolling through Facebook, and I'll just have to, like, I'll have to stop. I'll have to be like, i got to get off the merry-go-round. But, it has to, but I have to, like, force myself because Facebook is meant to keep you scrolling. You know, Instagram is just meant to keep you scrolling. It's built to be addictive that way. And, and I've just recently learned that it was constructed to keep me addicted by just keep that thumb going. And, and I think now that I know that it was built that way, I can, like, disempower that, right? So just, I'm sharing that to say, take back your life from Facebook and Instagram um, and Twitter, right? Um, and we all have different levels of what we're capable of handling on social media, right? And some can handle more than others, right? But uh, investing very specifically in that kind of self-care, Louise, is so important. So don't, you know... Yes, take a step back. Um, yeah, and Louise was asking, does anybody have, you know, any, any wisdom on how to deal kind of just personally with the overwhelming nature of what's going on in our world today? You know, I honestly, like, 
for me, being a part of a community like this, and obviously you're sitting there in that pew today because I think this is a part of dealing with that for you. This is a healthy outlet, right? This is kind of like group therapy in a way, right? Um, and you know, it's funny, I think we're often described as sort of a gloomy church because we give voice to this stuff and a lot of churches won't because it's, it's damn depressing. You know, who wants to go to sit in a church on Sunday morning and be like, this world's in big trouble and I'm feeling it. And then we kind of leave with that feeling. But there's something like therapy. It's helpful to go and, and talk about that in community. And I, and I hope that that's helpful here. I hope, I think it is. But, you know, because um, and, and last, last time I was here, two weeks ago, I'm looking at you, Jen, simply because you were, you echoed like, hey, this was a really hopeful sermon. Uh, <laughs> this is like two or three weeks ago um, where I talked about how um, th- there, is, there is good reason for hope. And, and despair is not just self-defeating, but despair is actually unrealistic. Because there's so much that, as, that has changed for the better in the world of, just over the last hundred years. Social movements and changes in the way we think about race and gender, even like some environmental action. There's been actually some really, there's, there's, there's reasons for hope is what I'm saying, Louise. And you can go back and listen to my sermon. I won't re-preach it right now. But I delivered a really hopeful sermon a few weeks ago. <laughs> Um, and, and I just want to encourage you by pointing to that. It's up on, I think it's up online already. But anyway, um, does anybody have any words of wisdom? Yeah, Jen. Um, I guess give that mic a whirl, but you can See if this works. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I find that what helps me when I'm feeling super depressed about these big, huge issues, that as an individual, you feel like you can't really do a whole lot about them because they're so monumental. It helps for me to remind myself that I change lives every single day by every single action that I do, every single interaction that I have with people. I change their life in some small way just by walking past them or smiling at them or being nice to them in some sort of interaction. You know, that changes their life and it might, might not be some monumental, oh my God, my life has changed. But in some way, you, it's like marble, mar- marbles or pool balls hitting each other. Somehow you change the tra- traje- trajectory of their life that day. And if you try to make all of those instances positive and healthy for each person that you interact with, then you are changing the world. So... Yeah, that's really good. And, you know, I, when you think about the events, the circumstances, maybe a, a book you read, a person you talked to, when you think about the things that have changed you most in life that led you to where you're at now, I'm willing to bet that it's a handful of little moments. It's a handful of an encounter with one person. Maybe it was a, a TED Talk you listened to or a book you read. You know, I can point to little, little encounters with an individual or with a single book or you know, seeing something online that changed me. So don't, as Jen said, don't ever doubt the little impacts. You, you think they're little, but actually they lead to enormous changes in people's lives. The little, it's always the little things. It's always the little things. You know, big things have small beginnings. You know, the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus, I see your hand, Mariel. The parable of the mustard seed, right? The wisdom of Jesus big things in the, the kingdom of God is made up of little, little seeds, little, little movements, little, little actions have enormous consequences. That's the way the kingdom of God works. Have faith in that. Have faith in that.
Yeah. Anyway, okay. Uh, can you pass the mic back to Mariola? Thank you. Um, so from what you said and from just everything that's going on in the world, I sometimes feel like what can I do to help anybody, especially in another country, and how can I how can just one individual or even like hundreds of thousands of individuals in the US do anything to help this because we don't technically have any power. And what um, I actually did, I've been trying to get involved with Habitat for Humanity for a long time and I was able to do that um, at the end of last month. Wow. So I helped build a house and it's something that I'm gonna continue. Um, they're building like a ton of them in Culver City, like 10 different houses. Really? But yeah, y'all should check it out. But my point is, <laughs> um, it's almost like if, for me personally, when I know that I feel like I can't do anything about what's going on other places, I can do a little something here. And I, and I feel like if every person, because we, we all live in this like, I feel like sometimes a little bubble and we have to do all these things for ourselves and our families and the people we love and, and we forget about other people that are around us, that are so close, and we hear all these big things that are happening, and we're like, oh, we can't do anything, and it just bothers us, for, that's for me particularly, yeah. it just bothers me, and I'm just like, ah, but just, if, it, I almost feel like if everybody just took like a few hours every week and did something outside of what they normally do to help somebody else, and as like a community of Americans, I guess, or people in general, like that sort of changes how you see and view other things and how you feel about even wanting to participate more, just like the whole spiritual or communal like, I, light, lightness, I guess, yeah, I don't know, yeah. of, of, of people, I think somehow that can change policies and can change the hearts and can change the minds of so many people when we get outside of our normal everyday lives and just start yeah. doing a little bit for, for, for somebody that's close by. So yeah. it's not like, cause I, I think that all of us feel like everything's so big that we, we don't matter, but there's always a little bit of something that we can do. And it's like if a hundred thousand people are doing a little bit of something, your heart start to change. Yeah. So that's awesome. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thank you, Muriel. Yeah, absolutely. And um, good stuff. Yes. Erica. Um, just really quickly, going off of like trying to get off of social media, um, I know uh, personally and with friends and stuff like that, um, sometimes you just need to take Greenless Saturday. You just need to yeah. turn off your phone all day and not use it and do just read or play records or draw or do something tactile, you know, volunteer um, or it's silly, but set you know, set a parental lock for yourself. <laughs> like you can't, you can't go on your phone past yeah, nine cool. or something. Cool. And then it forces you to like, okay, well let's just read tonight. And yeah. it's not like, I don't want to say that you're ignoring it because at least for me personally, when I need to do something like with the, all the wildfires going on in Australia and things like that, I can very, very, very easily spiral into depression just yeah. looking into that. So sometimes I kind of have to take a step back and almost think about it objectively, like, okay, 
what's a little thing that I can do? Can I donate my money somewhere? Can I donate goods somewhere? Can I do something like that since it is so far? And then I kind of have to check it. And then maybe later on, you know, I can look into it, see how, see what's going on in the world. But you know, you can't, you can't be into it. You can't dwell on it constantly. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and um, let me just, I want to just finish by saying that even participating in a little community like this one is making a difference in people's lives. We talked a few weeks ago about something called the Ministry of Presence. And it's, I, I know it sounds maybe trite in some ways, but it isn't. Just showing up, just showing up on a Sunday, it sounds very self-serving for the pastor to say this, but just <laughs> showing up on a Sunday morning, and sitting in a pew like in a small community like this one, when people are constantly coming in here afresh, you know, we have visitors every single week, and quite often those people are in various stages of deconstruction, maybe they're LGBTQ and wondering if this is a safe place. And just you physically being here is a ministry of presence to those people. In a small, small church like this, you just being here tells other people, there's, there's people here that care, there's people here that are invested in community, there's people here for you to know, that are here to care for you. And in a radical little community like this one, where we are leaning on each other for hope in the world, where so many people are coming through the doors who are in deconstruction or who, who are in a sense of real loneliness because the, the churches they grew up in have turned their backs on them. Their family has turned their backs on them. You physically just being here is a ministry that makes a difference in people's lives. Just being here. I know that's self-serving for a pastor to say. I don't mean to guilt anybody, but I'm saying that there's, there's, we're talking about little ways you can make a difference just being a part of a little community like this one, showing up, just showing up. It's a powerful thing. Okay, uh, Ashley, and then we'll conclude. So really quick, um, I think a way of coping with what's happening is honestly to learn more about what's happening. Yes, yes, yes. I think that we assume that because we've read three or four notifications on our phone about the war that we understand what's happening, and I don't think that's sufficient enough. In my experience, the more I learn about uh, different issues, the more the anxieties kind of fall a little bit, and the more I am willing to even just discuss it with other people and be more engaged. I know that a a short example is when I first moved to LA, I was part of an LGBT Christian community, a Christian church. Yes. Like 90% LGBT. And a lot of our Bible study discussions was how how challenging that was. And it felt depressing because it was just so sad. They were constantly talking about their families not accepting them and et cetera, et cetera. So I unconsciously found myself drifting towards a side B community, Mm. side B church, where that wasn't discussed at all. Not realizing that I was silencing reality to cope. Um, And I didn't realize that I was doing that until I went to the arena where all of those voices were raised again, all of the yeah. challenges. Um, and I, it's almost like I have to consciously say, okay, I, I wanna know. I'm not gonna pretend anymore. Wow. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's huge, because that's terrifying, because it's easier to put your head in the sand and not. You know, Ecclesiastes says, you know, those who increase knowledge, increase sorrow. Those who increase knowledge, increase sorrow. Um, yeah. But that, that, that act of courage is an act of hope. An act of courage is an act of hope. Just, what you're in, just investing yourself in knowing and investing yourself in that kind of courage is an act of hope. 
Let's end with that. Let's end actually, let's end with a word of prayer. You bow with me. Loving God of our many understandings, we commit ourselves into the way of Christ, his kind of courage, his kind of hope, his kind of love. Empower us with his spirit, we pray. Make us into his hands and feet in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 